Truth Espresso, episode 258. Face it, we all would rather sleep in this morning. <sighs> That's why God gave us espresso, to kickstart our zombified corpses into hyperdrive. <laughs> and now, giving your mind and soul the morning shot of truth it craves. <sighs> this is Truth Espresso with Daniel Minnick. Well, hello there, friends, family, foes, and lurkers alike. This is your host, Daniel Minnick, and I have with me once again my sweet, beautiful wife and co-host, Chelsea, and we are going to continue the series that we started last week, last Monday, with answering the question, who are the Nephilim? And we'll see that if after our study through these episodes in the series, if we will be certain who the Nephilim are or still leave it up to the listener to decide. And so thanks for doing this with me, sweetheart. Thanks for having me join in on this conversation. It's been very interesting to read <laughs> all the different thoughts and scriptures that even back up some of the different thoughts that we're talking about. So <laughs> it's something that you definitely have to research and study and dig through. So. so if you haven't listened to last week's episode where we talked about the fallen angel theory, definitely give that a listen. And then whatever opinions you might have formed from that or that you've had going into that, you can then bring them to this episode as we look at another theory. And I have to say that the angel theory is definitely the most interesting. I don't know how you can get a theory about this that would be more intriguing, bring about more wonder and contemplation to think about what would the pre-flood, the antediluvian world, look like you know it's the stuff that movies are made of <laughs> and novels and stuff like that so yeah it's it's hard to beat the entertainment value of that theory <laughs> It's the most fun, I guess. And so now we're going to get into the second one of the two most common theories. The fallen angel theory is definitely one of the most common ones. And then alongside that is the theory about the sons of God and the daughters of men being different family lines through Adam. So the sons of God are largely the descendants of Seth, and the daughters of men reflect either the women in particular or the descendants of Cain. And so when Genesis chapter 6 mentions the sons of God taking wives from among the daughters of men, that basically you have the righteous people intermarrying with the unrighteous people to produce unrighteous people. <laughs> and so then you end up with ultimately the world being populated by almost all unrighteous people. So let's get into some of the arguments in favor of this view, or we could call it the Sethite view, of who are the sons of God and ultimately who are the Nephilim. Sweetheart, do you want to uh, start with the first argument for the Sethite view? So our first one, we're going to begin in Genesis chapter 4, where it mentions the lineage of Cain. 
but it ends with Seth's son. And then began men to call upon the name of the Lord in Genesis 4 verse 26. And then Genesis chapter 5 follows, which details the lineage of Seth. It mentions how Enoch walked with God in Genesis 5, 22 and 24. And then we get to Genesis chapter 6, where it begins talking of humanity multiplying. Again, we have potentially the two lineages intermixing and multiplying sinful man. So having detailed the two lineages context would seem to make the sons of God kind of refer back to male descendants of Seth and the daughters of men refer back to the descendants of Cain. But according to John Gill's commentary, when Adam died, the descendants of Seth lived on Mount Hermon where they buried Adam and the descendants of Cain lived in the valley below where Cain killed Abel. So the Sethites maintained for a time a cultural of probably purity and perhaps heard the angels worship God. The Canaanites lived impiously and had multiple wives as Lamech demonstrated. Oh boy. (laughs) Perhaps the Canaanites became more populous than the Sethites because of frivolous relationships, basically polygamy, (laughs) and then the availability and loose flair of the Canaanite women probably kind of allured some of these more pious Sethites here. So that's a very interesting argument for, so we have the context of Genesis 6 being the previous two chapters then. So, okay, so we have Genesis chapter 4, mostly talking about what happened with Cain and then his descendants, and they built a city of Tubal-Cain. You have basically the descendants of Cain were very big on art and culture and building up armies, I'm guessing here. But then at the end, it mentions Adam bore Seth, Seth bore Enos, and and then, then began man to call on the name of the Lord. So then you have that as kind of leading into Genesis chapter 5, which then details the line of Seth. So you have two lineages detailed before you get to chapter 6, which in general talks about how, well, now humanity has been multiplying. But what happens now with these two lines detailed, they end up mixing up. And then it's kind of like when you mix uh, food coloring and water or you know, probably could think of a better illustration. They don't stay separate. The whole thing becomes the color of the food coloring. <laughs> or Jesus mentions a little leaven, leaveneth the whole lump. The product of at least formerly righteous people intermarrying with people who aren't righteous, you know, it compromises the righteousness of people and then their descendants end up being unrighteous. And so if ultimately with that intermarrying, you end up with pretty much everyone being fallen and unrighteous. So then you end up with Noah and his family really being the last righteous people. So I think it's kind of interesting hearing about how there's that possible intermarriage of followers or like righteous people and then the unrighteous people because later in the New Testament we come to those verses where it says, therefore do not be unequally yoked. With unbelievers. Yeah, so it's kind of that same premise of, okay, you don't want to knowingly go and marry someone who's an unbeliever because that just causes so much tension and problems and like, okay, we can look back at 
at what happened throughout the Bible and that people wouldn't obey God or they would try and do things their own way and go and marry someone that was of a different belief or not a believer. And then it would pull them down into not following God anymore. I have example of Solomon and his many wives, and then his wives, most likely many of them were dignitaries of other nations, and then they led his heart away from God. You know, that's always what happens. And Samson. Yeah, Samson and Delilah, yeah. He wanted a wife from the Philistines, yeah. So the Sethite view does at least give us an illustration of what happens when people compromise for the sake of what they think might be love, but it's really lust. Mm-hmm. It's really self-seeking. Another argument in favor of the Sethite view is that if we're reading the text up to this point, we've seen nothing about angels spoken of. So up to this point in scripture, angels are not mentioned. The first mention of angel, Malach, is Genesis sixteen seven, when the angel of Yahweh talked to Hagar, Abraham's servant with whom he had Ishmael. It would be difficult for us to understand or know if the reader of Genesis, to whom Genesis would be written, intended to read it, would already know to interpret sons of God, this phrase here as referring to angels, kind of like, whoa, where did this come from? Because we're just talking about humans here who are given dominion over the earth. We're talking about the sons of Adam and how all that sorted out. And then we're talking about humans multiplying. And then all of a sudden, this phrase, sons of God, is supposed to refer to angels. It's, it's kind of strange to think, like, okay, it doesn't say angels, but we presume they are. The reader presumes they are. So to understand these sons of God as referring to angels requires reading into the narrative of Genesis here something that isn't clear, and no other passage in Genesis clarifies this either. So taking Genesis by itself, where do we get angels in this passage? Why would we assume that they're angels up to this point? And the word Nephilim, when we do look at it, it literally seems to mean fallen ones, as we mentioned in the previous episode in this series. It's been translated as giants, like particularly we get that from the Latin Vulgate, where it's gigantes. The Greek Septuagint translated it as giants, but that could have been the older rabbinic tradition at this time, assuming the fallen angel view and assuming that the Nephilim, the fallen ones in Genesis 6, had to be giants, and so that's how they translated it. But it doesn't technically have to mean giants, unless we look at Numbers 13, where the Nephilim there are giants. So maybe not all fallen ones or Nephilim have to imply that they're giants. It could mean that they were the offspring examples of how humanity in general, the Sethites and the Cainites, intermarried and then ultimately mankind had truly fallen from God's design for marriage, faith, and family. What were once great humans, these are the fallen ones. These are the ones who were destroyed in the flood. Sometimes I think that there are so many interesting mysteries in the word that it's like, I look forward to the day when (laughs) we get to fully understand like what some of this means because like 
oh, okay, this makes sense that it would be fallen angels. And then wait, this makes sense that it could be from the lineages intermarrying. And it's kind of mind boggling. But this is why we study God's word and why we have these True Espresso episodes to challenge our thinking and look at truth and see this is what God's word says. Let's see how we can understand it to the fullest extent we can. Good point there, sweetheart, because as we get into theories about this, the most important thing we should take away from this passage is compromise and wickedness. People became so evil that God had to destroy the world in the flood. However, we understand Nephilim and the sons of God, and what we realize is that people did evil to such an extent that, hey, God decided to wipe out the world with a flood, and then he ultimately promised that he would never again flood the world. Now it'll be destroyed by fire, you know, as Second Peter 3 talks about, but God promised he'd never flood the world again, and there's been a lot of pretty bad things that have happened since the flood, but God never judged the earth with a flood like he did at this time. So there's a lesson to be learned there. The Christian Podcast Community is a cohesive group of like-minded Christian podcasters. Proclaiming the truths of Christ, truths of Christ, with expertise and passion in the areas of theology, church history, Christian living, evangelism, apologetics, parenting, homeschooling, sermons, and much, much more. Much, much more. So check us out at Christian Podcast Community. ChristianPodcastCommunity.org One stop for all your favorite Christian podcasts. So we come to our third argument for the Sethite view, which talks about how there are different ways of saying sons of God. And this often refers to God's people. We see in Exodus 4 verse 22, it says, And thou shalt say unto Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. And then in verse 23, And I say unto thee, Let my son go, that he may serve me. And if thou refuse to let him go, behold, I will slay thy son, even thy firstborn. Kind of also sounds like where Matthew mentions, out of Egypt have I brought my son, and how that was ultimately fulfilled in Jesus coming out of Egypt. But Israel's referred to the son, God's son, or his people, or his son. And also Deuteronomy 14, verse 1, it specifically says, Ye are the children of the Lord your God, or Yahweh Elohim. So the words for children, banim, you are the banim of Yahweh Elohim. So the bene Elohim that are the sons of God in Genesis 6, it's similar I mean, sure, it's not exactly the same phrase there. The words are separated, but there are different ways of saying that someone is the sons or children of God. And Psalm 82, verse 6, it says, I have said, ye are gods, or Elohim. There's referring to the judges of Israel there. And all of you are children of the Most High. Bene El Elyon. 
it might not be the exact same words or the exact same forms, but you know, in any language, you can use different ways of saying and meaning things that are similar. I found it interesting. I was reading an article from Answers in Genesis about the Nephilim and the different views and stuff, and they pointed out that another variation, kind of referring to Psalms eighty-two six that you just read, that the sons of God could be considered the rulers or kings or people mm. in like high power positions. And this could also be where a lot of the ancient civilizations would refer to the demigods. That could be kind of stemmed from that. And the verses that they said kind of follows that view was from Psalm 82 verses 1 through 6. And just talking about how they know not, neither will they understand. They walk on in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are out of course. That was verse 5. And then verse 6, I have said, ye are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High. In verse 7, but ye shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. So yeah. it's kind of interesting that there's like so many snippets here where you can see, oh, it can mean this, or sons of God could refer to this group of people. <laughs> so it's like the judges or the rulers of Israel, those who are entrusted with the law are called the Elohim. Because then I think in verse one there, which I didn't put on the notes, it says that God stands in the midst of the Elohim, the judges. So, so God is greater than, and God is the one who's in the midst of the gods or the Elohim. The psalm is addressing the leaders as the Elohim, but he's saying, all of you, Israel, are sons of the Most High. God also said of King Solomon in Second Samuel 7.14, I will be his father and he shall be my son. God also told Jeremiah, I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn, in Jeremiah 31.9. So there are plenty of passages in the Hebrew Old Testament, more so than referring to angels as sons of God. There are more passages that refer to people, humans, particularly those who are set apart as God's people, who are considered, or at least are supposed to be, the chosen righteous ones. And so that lends support to the Sethite view that the lineage of Seth, where Enoch walked with God, then with Enos being born to Seth, then began people to call upon the name of the Lord. So these are the people that the Messiah could come from this line. Or like that's the projection basically here until they intermarried, compromised, and now where's the righteous line when everyone's wicked? Just about everything everyone except for Noah and his family. Don't you think this is a beautiful picture of how God views mankind like that he calls himself a father to us and a father to these children like even though they mess up they do wrong they disobey him he still is like no these are my children this is my son and I think that is just like a glimpse of the grace and uh, long suffering that God pours out on his people and that he just cherishes his creation of mankind and how God is always willing to extend his arms and like hey if you're willing to come back if you come back I'm here willing and able to take you back and especially the example of Israel God's people how many times they went away and so point number four is kind of another support for this and I think Israel's a good demonstration of it. So a 
passage that seems like a good parallel to Genesis 6 verses 2 and 3 referring to the sons and God marrying the daughters of men demonstrating God's people intermarrying with the pagan people is uh, Judges 3 verses 5 through 6 where it says and the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites Hittites and Amorites and Perizzites and Hivites and Jebusites and they took daughters to be their wives and gave their daughters to their sons and served their gods so it demonstrates the righteous people the set-apart people intermarrying with the unrighteous people, and the result of it is that God's people end up committing idolatry. So they no longer worship God when they compromise by intermarrying with pagan people and taking their practices. They set aside the worship of God to marry people that they're attracted to without saying, are you godly as well? So the problem wasn't, now, just to make sure you don't understand, when we're talking about the Sethite view, that it's the lineage of Seth and the lineage of Cain, the sin is not, oh no, you mixed blood. It has nothing to do with tribal differences. It's entirely to do with compromising God's design by marrying those who don't serve God. So it's not like, oh no, the bloodline of Seth must not be impured with the bloodline of Cain. The descendants of Cain themselves basically went into idolatry and pagan living. And so the Sethites, who continued to be righteous, at least by tradition, as we understand it, by what they had inherited from their ancestors who did worship God, they compromised the faith by intermarrying with people who didn't hold the righteous practices and views. So that was the sin that this view is talking about. So when it says that they took wives or women whom they chose, that could imply basically a polygamous free-for-all. Like, I don't think the sin is, oh, you married the wrong person. I think what could be in the Sethi view to understand they took wives or women whom they chose. It just basically means they let down all standards. They let loose. And it was kind of like just whatever I want to do with anyone. That's how it devolved into. That reminds me of a term that is popular right now where it's a open relationship. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Like I think this was ultimately, a, you know, it wasn't marriage ceremonies here. <laughs> there was no like, oh, you just married married the wrong person. It was more like a complete free-for-all, a complete collapse of any kind of standards or commitment or free-for-all polygamy. For some reason, this reminds me of a passage in Proverbs, which I'm sure I'll mess it up, but basically the idea of like telling the son to beware of these beautiful women, but they're deceitful because their paths will lead you down to the depths of hell. And it's basically like Proverbs 7 or house is a doorway to hell, basically, you know, leading to the grave, the deceptive woman who can capture the simple minded man 
But I think it's interesting how like it's a warning that like if you follow that lust, that desire, and it's someone who doesn't follow God, that they're going to drag you down. They're going to pull you down. And that passage, it says even down to hell, it's not saying, oh, it's okay if you marry this person because they're so beautiful and you might be able to bring them up with you. It's never the case. In scripture, it always sees where it pulls you down. They end up being in a bad position. They can be sold into slavery or (laughs) different things like that. So it's just interesting that we see just so many times where God warns us, like, this is how he designed it. This is how it should be. And it's not because he's like, oh, I don't want you to marry someone beautiful or like that. But it's for our own good because there's more to that. He doesn't want us to lose sight of him. And if you marry someone who isn't serving God, then you can quickly lose sight of God and that he's the one that we need to focus on. What's the purpose of marriage or a relationship like that? Is it just self-seeking or is there a goal to it? Is there a purpose to it? Is it according to God's design? Is it like, I sought you, you seek me, we're in this together to serve our Lord? This has a lot of marriage principles in it on this episode. <laughs> yeah. So even if the Sethite view is not the correct interpretation, it at least has a lot of lesson to it. And that's what's so amazing about studying God's word is that there's so much truth that just like pours out from it. Mm. <laughs> like, oh, wow, there's this truth here and there's this truth and this principle. And it's just I love it when we get to study scripture and talk about it together. It's just like. Wow, it's so neat to see how, I mean, when it describes like God's word is the living word, it just seems like it comes to life when we get to study it and talk about it together because there's so much depth to it that every time we read a certain passage, it can be totally different from reading it last week because we have a different perspective and I love that getting into his word. Good thoughts, sweetheart, as we go now to dismantle the Sethite view. Yikes. <laughs> or at least look at some arguments against it. <laughs> I was kind of like, oh, this one does sound kind of convincing. Oh, boy. Okay, let's see what the arguments against this are. Before we start doing this, I was reading a bunch of articles that were written by very avid proponents of the fallen angel view that were like trying to tear this apart. Like, you know, <laughs> <laughs> like, whoa, you're pretty harsh on this view as if it's like a devious view or something. But otherwise, we found some arguments against this and they're worth considering. If you hold to the Sethite view here, just as with any view on this challenging passage, there are going to be questions raised about it to try to fit all the pieces of the puzzle together. So the first argument against the Sethite view, we haven't talked much about the Nephilim so far. Uh, We talked about the meaning of the word, but given scripture, we mentioned Numbers 13, it does seem compelling that the Nephilim refer to giant people physically large people and so if that is the case and if it does seem reasonable to see that the nephilim 
are the men of renown, you know, stuff like that, or at least it does seem reasonable as the verse repeats that when the sons of God came to the daughters of men and they produced offspring that the Nephilim are the offspring. It seems compelling when you read that verse, and it also seems compelling that the Nephilim are large people. And so if that's the case, then what's the basis to argue that if you take descendants of Seth and you intermarry them with descendants or women of Cain, that the product are giants or mighty warriors? If either or both, referring to the Nephilim or the Gibberim, the mighty warriors, like if either of them are indeed the offspring of the sons of God and the daughters of men intermarrying, then genetically speaking, why would Sethites and Canaanites intermarrying produce something like this? One thing I did read about that argument was that the Canaanites would choose bigger, larger people to marry. It was kind of like a selective, not reduction, but (laughs) improvement to try and create a large army that would be able to take over the Sethites. So it was like, we're going to find our largest person here and marry the largest person with the other side and try and keep creating these larger and larger people. Hmm. was one thing that I read on that part of it. But. <laughs> that is a, a plausible explanation there because the Canaanites, we see they were, despite their being pagan, they were focused on culture and they seemed to be focused on trying to improve themselves, build cities, build defense, build armies and such that they wanted to preserve themselves. Rather than seeking to serve God, they were seeking to serve themselves and so they wanted to make sure they were the mightiest people and so they could have had methods to make sure that the descendants that who knows what kind of abominations happen at this time compared to today with things like abortion and selective breeding and stuff like that they could have produced larger people through intentional selection are you just watching you grab the popcorn plant the family on the couch and flip on the tv but have you left your worldview behind Media comes in all forms, and all of it contains some level of indoctrination. Are You Just Watching? The Entertained Christian's Handbook to Consuming Media with Purpose is a guided journal with worldview-shaping info and lots of guided note pages to help you watch and discuss anything you put before your family's eyes. Purchase it now on Amazon.com. And don't just watch. So we come to our second argument against the Sethite view, which talks about how everyone after the flood would be a descendant of Noah, and hence a descendant of Seth. There would be no Canaanites to intermarry to produce Nephilim that we see in Numbers 13. Yeah, and so the last episode, we talked about the problem of where did the Nephilim in Numbers 13 come from? Even in the fallen angel view, there's the problem with the flood. Then you have proposed solutions for, well, how did we end up with more Nephilim if the flood destroyed every human except Noah and his family? But for those who are old earth or local flood people, they could just suggest that some of the Nephilim happened to move away from the flood region and settle in Canaan, and therefore that's why we have more Nephilim. And so 
There could therefore be children of Seth, the Sethites and the Cainites, who weren't destroyed in the local flood, who moved to Canaan, and therefore you have more Nephilim there, and more giant people there by means of the selective breeding and whatever technology they might have had at that time and stuff. So Noah and his family could have been purely descendants of Seth. They didn't have grandparents that were intermarried mm. between. Yeah, we Cain don't. And yeah, Seth. it's it's hard to tell. I mean, he was definitely at least Noah, as mentioned, is definitely a descendant of Seth. Mm-hmm. We have no. I don't think we can know for certain how his wife. But so there is a lineage of Seth there, and usually things are considered through the fathers. So mm-hmm. we don't know who if Noah's ancestors were all Sethites. Those who would focus so much on bloodlines like that might would say, well, they had to have been. But you know, if we made the point that things had to do with righteousness, as long as they were righteous people, who cares what their bloodline was? Perfect because everyone of course came from adam anyway but noah was a just man zedek and his family went along with him and so there were eight souls who were saved through the flood as peter mentions and so there's at least some sethite blood there well, I was wondering genetically if they did have any Cain blood like through their family that that could come out later too. <laughs> it is interesting like genetics like generational gaps and stuff yeah. like that. So I remember when I worked in recessive Flor- genes. Yes. <laughs> okay. When I worked at a nursery in Florida, there was a couple, both parents were African American and they had twins. One baby was very white and the other baby was very black. (laughs) And they were both like, what happened here? And they were kind of frustrated that their babies were so different. Uh And they were twins. And so they even had genetic testing done to make sure that they were both actually from that mom and dad. And then they found out like there was a lot of Caucasian history behind one of the mom's side of the family that she didn't know about. And so that just came out strong in that twin. So it's just so interesting how there can still be that genetic material in the DNA that can pass, but it might take a little bit for it to come out again. Yeah, that could explain how you could have Nephilim after the flood. But Nephilim, as we said in the Seth eye view, isn't necessarily have to do with I mean, at least the meaning of the term refers to fallen, but if the Nephilim are the result of Sethites and Cainites intermarrying and and the Nephilim are their offspring, then yes, that could explain more how Nephilim can happen after the flood. And now the third and final argument against the Sethite view is it kind of comes from I actually did do a Truth Espresso Express episode as I was driving to work. I think last week where one of the questions I answered about the hardest verses in the Bible and one of them was well where did Cain get his wife well since the answer to where did Cain get his wife as I talked about there is in Genesis 5 4 that Adam and Eve had sons and daughters were there other sons along with these daughters because Cain needed a wife a daughter of Adam to get a wife but if there were other sons So you have Cain, you have Seth. If there are other sons, where are their lines? 
Why only mention the lines of Cain and Seth? What about other lines from Adam? What happened to them at the time of the flood? That's a question to consider. It's not a make or break question, but it is one of those things that are interesting to consider because then it seems like when we get to Genesis 6, if we're considering the Sethite view, like, are we only saying that there were two lineages and now that they intermarried, now there's no righteous... They're all compromised. There is no righteous um, tradition of descendancy to carry on righteousness. So I have a question. Was Abel married? And did he have kids before Cain killed him? That's a good question. And of course, since the Bible's kind of silent on it, I would assume that Cain and Abel were kind of young at the time that Cain Mm -hmm. killed him. It just mentions that Abel tended sheep. I would assume that Abel was single at the time, and so that was the end. That seemed to be like, well, now what? Because if Cain killed him, Cain committed a capital crime, and God put the mark on Cain that if anyone seeing him would kill him, which obviously also goes to Adam had sons and daughters, there were other people. If at this time, I mean, Adam had sons and daughters, he at least had a daughter at the time, long enough for Cain to get a wife. But, okay, if Cain's deserving of death and has a mark for a capital offense here, and Abel is the one that we presume would be the line from which the Messiah would come, well then, yeah. Where's the hope now at this point? We need someone besides Cain to be the father of the line through which the Messiah would come. Maybe they were a family of like eight girls and three boys or something. Yeah, it's possible. It says Adam had sons and daughters. It might be. So I said it's not a make or break question because maybe the sons refer to Cain, Abel, and Seth. Or maybe there were other sons, who knows? But it's just a mm-hmm. question to consider if there were other sons, what happened to their lines? So, do you think we're any closer to understanding who the Nephilim are? Or do we have more (laughs) views to look at? (laughs) We at least have some more ideas. We at least have arguments for and against two different views here. So, we've hashed out stuff. But, yeah, as I would answer that question, I don't know if we are (laughs) closer (laughs) yet. We're just, we're learning. We're getting thoughts out there and we're looking at the scriptures as you know we should do. And so we talked about the fallen angel view last episode in the series. And now we just talked about the Sethite view. And so the next episode in the series, we're going to talk about a third view. Now I know that I've seen up to four, maybe even five views, but there'd be kind of like variations on them. Mm-hmm. And so the third view we're going to talk about has more to do with royalty, dignitaries, and coercion. So stay tuned for the next episode in this series as we look at a third view to explain who the sons of God and the daughters of men and the Nephilim are. By then or after that point, we will try to figure out if we can come up with, maybe we'll deliberate and figure out if one of those theories is best or if there's a way to figure out a hybrid theory or something. <laughs> so you mean it, <laughs> I have to argue with you about which view we like? Well, maybe we can kind of put our heads together and come up with a truth espresso theory. <laughs> <laughs> okay.
<laughs> that sounds better. <laughs> so yeah, you don't want to miss the next episode on who are the Nephilim, and so continue to stay tuned to Truth Espresso and God bless. Thank you for waking up with Truth Espresso. Good morning, and God bless your day. Hey friends, Daniel Minnick here again. If you liked waking up to this episode of Truth Espresso, I would really appreciate it if you would rate it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever application you use to listen to Truth Espresso.